I want to encourage you to get a Bible out. If you don't have one, share with the person next to you. I want to encourage you to get a pen out. Let's record what the Holy Spirit is impressing upon our hearts as we study. Because it's always good. You learn more, studies show, when you write something down when you hear it. Then you retain it. And then you can go back and study it. And it's not that it's my words. It's that this is God's word. And we're going to ask the Holy Spirit again and again to speak to us as we study. Now, you remember from last week that Acts 4 signals a shift in the apostles' ministry as the gospel's spreading and they're becoming more visible. And now the opposition is increasing. And it's very vital at this point that they stand firm and not back down in their convictions. In the first part of the chapter, chapter 4, they were very outspoken and they had stood up for Christ without any equivocation. And it was obvious, as we saw last week, the distinguishing characteristic of a disciple of Jesus Christ, it was obvious to them, to the people that opposed them, to the people that opposed Christ, that had put him on the cross, it was obvious that these men had been with Jesus. And remember, we talked about that, not that they had walked with him for three years, but that Jesus was present with them, the Spirit was present with them, and they were residing in God's presence. And we talked about how our identity with Christ needs to be so unmistakable that people who see us see that he is present in us and that we're under his authority and his influence. So I want you to glance back just for a second at verse 8, just for context, because what verse 8 tells us when it says Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit is that the secret of spiritual courage is living under the control of the Holy Spirit. When we are living under his control, when we're living under his influence, we will be strong and courageous. When we are living under our own power, which is an oxymoron, when we're living in our own strength, when we're trying to gut it out and get the ability to get through life, we're going to fail every time, right? It's only when the Holy Spirit has invaded our hearts and is controlling us, and I use that, that's a scary word to us, but that's exactly what the concept needs to be. We are indwelt by the Spirit, we need to be filled by the Spirit every day, and we need to live under His control. Because if we don't live under His control, we'll live under the enemy's control. There's no middle ground. There's no, well, I don't want to be under either control, I'm going to be under my own control. Self-control is the most confusing, unrealistic word in the English language. There is no self-control in terms of the carnality of it. There's self-control in terms of spirituality, as the Bible says, where we're under the control of the Spirit, and that causes us to resist sin. But when we're on our own, there is no self-control. We're under the enemy's control. So they are under the control of the Spirit. They're completely given to the Lord. They're sold out to His work. They're surrendered to the Spirit's leading. They're confident in His faithful provision. And that's what causes their accusers to be so disarmed. This powerful group of unspiritual religious leaders who want to quiet them and quell this, this uh, movement of the Holy Spirit where people are getting saved every day and thousands are being added to the church. They want to shut them up. But, but they're quieted, it says in the text, as we saw at the end last week, by the obvious presence of the Lord. And this man standing here who once was lame, and now he's jumping around and he's praising God, and, and they have nothing to say in response. They're completely quieted by what they see. You see, we know 
when it's the power of God working in our lives and not our own power because the objections will be silenced and the doubters will be neutralized and they'll be powerless to explain it any other way than that's of the Lord. And I want you to notice in the text that these carnal men look at it and they say, that's the Lord. We can't explain it. There's no justification for our objection. There's nothing we can look at and say, well, this happened, this happened, this series of events took place, and that's why that lame man who's been lame for 40 years that we saw every day as we walked into the temple, that's why he's jumping around. We can explain it. They come to the conclusion in their collective wisdom, and I use that word in quotes, in their collective wisdom, they come to the conclusion that we can't explain it. It has to be the Lord. And because of that, they have no idea what to do with Peter and John. They openly admit that this was a miracle. They can't explain it away anywhere else. Everybody in Jerusalem knows it was a miracle. And they can't deny that it's true, because if they deny that that guy's really healed, then they're going to just look like stubborn fools. So they have a huge quandary. And the Spirit of God in the text, as we're going to read in just a moment, lets us into their private conversations. He lets us see that the secret conversation of this council to show that they know that this was from God. Start in verse 14 of chapter 4, and let's read. Seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. But when they had ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we can't deny it. But so it won't spread any further among the people. Let's warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name, speaking of Jesus. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. But we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. When they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding on no basis on which to punish them on account of the people, because the people were glorifying God for all that had happened. For the man who was more than 40 years old, on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. Now, the Holy Spirit takes us into the inner sanctum of this council, these religious leaders and scribes and hypocritical, arrogant people who pretended like they were really spiritual, but they weren't. They had killed Jesus. And he says, I'm going to tell you what they were talking about after they sent Peter and John away. They were talking about how powerless they were. They were talking about how all the people knew this was true. They were talking about how they couldn't do anything, that it was obvious, even to people who didn't trust in Christ, that the power of God had taken place, that Jesus Christ really is the Savior, and that trusting in Him really does change lives. They admitted it. They knew it was true, and they didn't know what to do with it. You would think at this point that they would just trust too. Why is it that people, when they know what the truth is, keep resisting? Why do they keep saying, well, yeah, there was a Jesus and there's something about the cross and nobody's ever found his grave and and the Bible says it's true, but I'm just not going to let my heart release to that. 
They had put Christ to death. His body was no longer there. 500 people had said, we saw him. This man now has healed. Peter and John are preaching in the name of Christ. And they are defenseless against it. Why don't they just give their heart into it? They know it's going to spread. Even as they're saying, we'll tell them they can't say it. Even as they come up with that plan, they know there's no way in the world the apostles are going to listen to them. They know it's going to be an idle threat. And yet, here's what they do. They command them. Don't tell anybody now. We're warning you. You feel the lack of power in their words? These guys, I don't know what to do with them. This man's healed. It's obvious that he's healed because of the name of Jesus Christ. What are we going to do? Let's warn them not to say it. And Peter and John come in, not timidly, but boldly. What do you guys want? And the man's still there, and he's healed, and he's walking around, he's doing a little dance, he's dusting his feet out, he's all happy and praising God, and he's standing there, and they say, we're, we're telling you not to speak about Jesus again. Don't, don't do it anymore. Now think about what they're saying. The people who are supposed to be the religious leaders are saying, don't talk at all about Jesus. Don't mention him. Don't speak about him. You know, the Bible says to test the spirits to know what is of the Lord and what is not. And we can always discern the spiritual temperature of a person or a church or a nation by the extent of their emphasis on Jesus Christ. These people want them to ignore Jesus, but you can't take Jesus out of the gospel, right? And you can't take Jesus out of the teaching ministry of a church. When we eliminate Jesus from our ministry, it makes the church powerless and it opens up the door for spiritual decline. And that's exactly what the enemy wants. The enemy wants to silence teaching about Christ or at least reduce it to the level where people are wallowing in elementary knowledge about the Word of God and living in spiritual maturity. And that's what Peter and John call out. They look at the men, and there's a little bit, I, I want to be careful here, there's a little bit of sarcasm in their voices. You guys are the ones that are supposed to have all the spiritual insight, so you tell us, is it better for us to follow you, or is it better for us to follow God? Now that question's a trap, because there's no good way to answer it. Well, whatever you guys conclude, it doesn't really matter to us, because we're going to tell you what we're going to do. We are not going to stop speaking about Jesus Christ. In fact, we cannot stop speaking about Jesus Christ. We, we can't. It's not possible. I want you to see that this is the testing point, not only for culture, but for believers and churches. Will we follow man, or will we follow God? Are we more concerned about meeting man's demands, or are we more concerned about meeting the Lord's expectations? How we answer that question will determine the, the effectiveness of our witness and the effectiveness of our ministry. Because there are really two foundational guiding principles for any church that come out of verses 19 and 20. All right? Here are the two principles. One is we obey God over man every time. We obey God over man. Second we can't and won't stop preaching about Jesus Christ. 
Now, Peter and John don't say, well, we're defiant. We don't want to stop speaking about him. Notice the word the Holy Spirit uses. He says, we can't stop speaking. I looked up the word in the Greek language. It literally means we do not have the power to stop. I can't, I, I can't stop doing this. I, it's, I don't have any control over it. I'm living under the control of the Spirit, and the Spirit's telling me to speak about Jesus. So you can put out all the threats you want. You can tell us not to do it. But I'm telling you, we don't have the power to do it. We are not able to be silent about the Lord. And I got convicted when I looked at that. And I said to myself, and I'm asking you, is that true of you and me this morning? Are we so full of love for the Lord Jesus Christ and so full of faith in Him and so confident in our assurance of His salvation that we can't stop talking about it? We're so full of the Spirit and the Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ, and the Spirit of Christ is saying, keep talking about Him. Keep talking about the Lord. Keep talking about salvation. Keep talking about God's sufficiency. Keep talking about Christ. Because the conversation of Christianity is more and more directed itself. And we know that the conversation of culture is all about self. So the gospel has to keep going Toward Christ. There is no gospel without Christ. And our conversation needs to be pointing back to Christ. Now, look at the text, because at this point, the apostles are an unstoppable force because they're being driven by their conviction. Everything is being driven, everything is being dictated through their conviction. And it caused them to be completely focused on talking about, as they say, what we have seen and heard. First John says, that which we have seen and heard, we now declare unto you. Peter and John are saying, look, we don't have this grand master plan. We don't have this agenda. We don't have a curriculum we want to give to you. We don't have anything we're trying to sell to you. We're not trying to draw people in to, to, to look at us. The only thing we know is what we saw and what we heard and what we have experienced and what we now know, which is Jesus Christ saved us from our sins. God has equipped us with power, and we've got to tell everybody else. It was all about what they understood and had experienced. And there's so much discussion right now and emphasis within Christianity about our experience. What I get out of church, and people are looking for alternatives and ways to sense the Lord and know that He's real, and we're trying different options and, and methods, trying to get a greater sense of the Lord. You know what? We need to quit trying so hard and just get back to Jesus. We're trying so many different ways to, to make ourselves feel something all we've got to know is Jesus. I don't know about you, but I don't need any new experiences to convince me that he's my Savior and my Lord. And I'd much rather spend my time finding joy in what I know about him and being reminded of what he's done in my life than trying to find some other thing that'll tell me something else that makes me feel good. The joy comes from this table. The joy comes from Christ. And Peter and John look at them in verse 20. They say, look, 
We, we can't stop. Here's what's happened in our life. The inward change has caused, it, it's made outward silence impossible. You can't stop us. We have to tell people. And since we've received the same forgiveness and the same Savior that they have, the same should be true of us. Are we like Peter before the resurrection when the nosy servant girl comes up to him at the fire and says, didn't you walk with Jesus? No, 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 no not me. Got the wrong guy. You sure? I, I, I remember you being with him. No, no, get away from me. No, I'm positive. You're, you're one of his disciples. And Peter the third time swore, I have not been with him. How could it be that that's the same guy that says, you're not ever going to let me stop talking about him. This is what happens when the Holy Spirit invades our hearts. And I ask you this morning, is it that profound in your life? Do you love him that much? Are you that grateful? Are we that demonstrative as a church? Listen, I love so much how open we are with worship, and I love our choir, and I love how you say amen. But... I just want to encourage us. This is not a criticism, it's an encouragement. We can be far more demonstrative. Now, hear me very carefully because I don't want to be misunderstood. Not demonstrative for a show. Not demonstrative so we can call attention to ourselves. God forbid we ever call attention to ourselves in His house. We need to be demonstrative to express our love for how do you express love to someone? Silently? With no emotion or passion? Hi, honey. Good to see you. Hi, kids. Have a good day. My son came in last night, my little man, and I was studying, and I was a little stressed, and he comes in, totally out of the comes in and gives me a hug, as he does every Saturday night, and he goes, you're such a nice dad. I thought, that's how you show love. You declare it. I hadn't seen him most of the day. You're such a nice dad. Gave me a big hug. Wandered off in his pajamas. I was jealous of him. <laughs> when you really understand the love and deliverance and salvation and sufficiency of God, listen now, church, you need to declare it. One pastor put it, the cause of a silent church is a defective conception of the gospel. Wow, what an indictment. I'd rather have people come to this church, listen again, not so we would be noticed, not so they'd say, well, that Harbor Rock Tabernacle's got a great show. I don't want anybody to ever use a word about this church. So the people would come in and they'd go, Wow. Those people can't stop speaking about what they've seen and heard. You can't shut them up. It's annoying. Let's be annoying. I'm fine with that. You can't, they just keep talking about Jesus. I, and and it's, it's, now it's starting to convince even me. Good. Look at what they do. They, they don't know what to do. They have no power to do anything. And they know they've done nothing wrong. Verse 21. And the people are glorifying God so loudly over this 40-year-old man 
who's healed. And there's no explanation for it other than God had done it. And now spiritual revival is starting to be bred because where people speak openly about the Lord, there will be a, a desire for the Lord. If we're open about our love for Christ, guess what happens? People that visit this church are going to want to love Christ too. Look at what happens next, verses 23 to 25. When they had been released, they went to their own companions, reported all the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it's you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that's in them, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of the, our father David, your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? Kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats. Grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal. And signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were gathered together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak the word of God with boldness. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own. But all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And abundant grace was on them all. For there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet. And they would be distributed to each as had need. Peter and John go back to their friends, they go back to their church, and they recount what took place. And I want you to notice in the text that there is no fear, there is no anxiety, there is no change in their ministry plan based on this threat. Instead, everybody says this opposition is evidence that God is at work in and through us, and it revived them and gave them a fresh passion and a fresh determination to be even more bold and more committed. See, Matthew 5.11 doesn't say, be hurt and afraid and hesitant to do ministry and, and, and be hesitant to be part of a church because people are going to insult you and persecute you about it and say all kinds of false, evil things about you because of me. So well, when that happens, church, now be hesitant and be scared and be timid and be hurt and be afraid and don't engage. Matthew 5.11 says, when that happens, you are blessed. So the word means be happy that you're fortunate enough to experience that as part of being with Christ. Listen, it's going to get worse People are going to criticize more. The church of Jesus Christ is going to be chipped away at internally and externally. And it's going to get harder and harder to be a Christian. Instead of saying, oh, what are we going to do? And why are people criticizing us? And, and I don't want to do this anymore. Instead of that, we need to say, great. That's exactly what Jesus said would happen. And we are blessed because of it. And I'm going to be happy that people don't like me. Because it's because of Christ. Listen, this is what spiritual opposition for, should do for us. It should not discourage or weaken us. It should strengthen and embolden us. 
Don't let temptation and don't let spiritual pressure and don't let people who don't love Christ drag you down. Let it stir your heart to love the Lord more and to be more fully engaged in ministry and to stand more boldly for him because that will be effective. When opposition hits, run to the presence of God and prepare for what he has ahead because James 1 says the Lord uses that opposition and uses that trial for our spiritual maturation and benefit. It will breed patience until we really learn what it is to trust God and then God will make us complete. Now the early church got that. That's why in verse 24, when Peter and John come back, they're praising the Lord and calling on his name. The great Scottish preacher Alexander McLaren said, prayer is the strongest weapon that a persecuted church can use. And the apostles do that here. And it says in the text, look at it, that they lifted their voices. I want to tell you right now, it was loud. The word there means that it was loud. They were not timid. They were not hesitant. They were not self-conscious. They didn't draw attention to themselves. Prayer should never, ever draw attention to you. Instead, as they lifted their voices to God and said, Oh, God, praise you for what you have done. And I'm saying it that loud because that's how loud it was. And as all of them lifted their voices, imagine the thousands of people that now trusted Christ. And Peter and John come back and the church gathers together and home after home after home and word spreads. And throughout Jerusalem, their words are praising God. Calling on His name bringing glory to him. And I want you to notice, look at the text. It says they were in one accord. They were moving forward literally with one mind. It has almost musical connotations in the Greek. It's like when a symphony comes together and you've got the first violin at the start of a symphony. And they're getting the note. I don't know music enough to know what note that is, but let's just call it C. Is that right? G, H, what, what note is it? A, it's not H? I know better. What note is it? Nobody knows. It's just a note. It's just a note. We'll call it C. Everybody likes C? Everybody say C. Good. All right. It's C. You've been to the symphony, right? You know what I'm talking about? And the first violin hits that note, and then they all tune together. It's all kind of dissonant for a minute. And then they all hit it, and then the conductor taps the wand. And he raises his arm. And they hit that first note and everybody's together. That's this phrase. When they prayed, Holy Spirit stops them. And they call on the Lord and it all sounds the same. Oh, what a concept it is. See, there's an important spiritual principle here that the challenge of facing spiritual warfare, especially as it affects us within the body, is that it should unite us in our resolve and unite us in our maturation rather than tearing us apart. And this is where the battle, church, is going to be fought in our lives every day and it's going to be fought in this church over the next 5, 10, 15 years or whenever the Lord comes back, which we hope is soon. And the enemy is going to attack in three ways because he always attacks in three ways because it's all he knows. 
One, he is going to create fear and discouragement in our hearts and minds. Second approach is he's going to incite a feeling that we can't have victory in the battle. And third, he is going to stir up interpersonal and relational conflict and resentment and accusation of each other. He's going to create fear. He's going to tell you you're not victorious. And then he's going to stir everything up so everybody's not on the same page. Our response should be exactly what the disciples' response is. We should be fearless and confident in God's power. We should remember, based on this table, that Jesus Christ himself secured the victory forever and says that we're more than overcomers through Christ, and then we need to be on guard and protective of each other, especially through prayer, so we don't have conflict. That's exactly what they do. Look at the text, verses 27 to 31. They're calling on the Lord together. They recognize the nature of the opposition, verse 27. They remind themselves of the power and sufficiency of God, verse 28. They ask for increased boldness and confidence and evidence of his power in verses 29 to 30. Listen, when we're fearful, we pray for protection. And when we're angry and passionate, we pray for revenge on the person who hurt us. But notice that there's not a single request in this prayer for protection or for God to punish their enemies or for them to have power for their own use. The only thing they pray is God advance the name of Christ through us. We get so caught up in all the junk that's around us and we need to get back to the focus of Lord through us and in us. Advance the name of Christ. Through this church, advance the name of Christ. May people not even see us. May they not think about us. May they not care about us. May they just see Christ. See, we've got to get back to the purity of prayer especially in opposition and trial because the enemy loves to come along and whisper all sorts of unsanctified suggestions about how you should feel and how you should react. But here's the confidence that we have as believers. God will never send you and me into a test or trial without also providing us with power that exceeds the level of the test or trial. God will never put you in a trial and say, "Mm, I'm not going to give you enough to overcome that. I'll give you a little bit, but I don't want to see a squirm. He says, when you enter into a trial, my grace will be sufficient. I'll give you far more, exceeding abundantly above what you ask or think during that trial. You just trust in me, and I'll get you through it. I woke up well before my alarm yesterday, and my first immediate thought was, this is going to be a day of opposition. I had no reason to think that. It was just as clear as I could understand. And I started to pray, Lord, just, okay, it's a Saturday. Saturdays are usually rough in terms of opposition, but today seems like a doozy. And I had to catch myself throughout the day, time and time again, when there'd be a little rub, a little blindside, a little something out of the blue that was just, And instead of reacting in my flesh like I wanted to, getting angry and frustrated, I had to, all right, Lord, this is, this is one of those things you woke me up about. Again and again and again. Even this morning, something just, I walked in, something bugged me immediately. And I felt, nope, remember. We have to keep reminding ourselves why the opposition is there. And what the potential is, listen now, because the opposition's there, If the enemy is opposing, 
then there's potentially something that God's going to do that he doesn't want to happen. And he's trying to get us off our game so we won't be part of that. But we're called in the midst of opposition to say the Lord's going to get me through it to focus on serving him and to stay faithful. I want you to look real quick. Look at two words in verse 29 because they're important. The first one's the word Lord. Literally, in this verse, it means master. Master means ownership and authority. They say, Lord, now, Lord, take note of the threats. The word literally means now owner, now our master, now the one who owns us. Take note of this. Look at the next phrase. And grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. The NASB uses the better word there than the NIV because it's stronger. In the NIV, it's servant. In the NASB, it's bondservant, and that indicates the depth of the word in the Greek. In the Greek, a bondservant was a slave who volunteered to be a slave. Now, a servant gets a day off. A servant has some rights, but a slave is a slave 365 days a year. And a slave has no rights, no possessions. They're obligated to do what the master commands them to do. We usually think of people that are slaves, like in the Sudan or other places, where, where they've been taken captive and forced into slavery. But it's outside our thinking that someone would walk up to a master and volunteer to be a slave. But that's what this word means. Listen now. A bond slave was a permanent volunteer slave. It's described in Exodus 21. You can study it later. We don't have time to turn. But a Hebrew slave had to serve for six years. In the seventh year, they were allowed to go free. But the provision in Exodus 21 was, if you love the master enough, you could volunteer to stay a slave. And when you volunteered in the seventh year to stay a slave, you then said, I will be a slave forever. And they would put you up against the door and they would stretch out your earlobe and they'd take an awl and they'd pound it through your ear and make a wide hole. And the wide hole said, I am a bond slave to my master. When you did that, you had no rights. The cost was not just high, it was total. Now go back to the verse and let's draw some conclusion. This is what we are called to be as Christians. We are called to be bond slaves. The master is not unfair. He's not overly demanding. He's been nothing but gracious to us. He's freed us eternally. He blesses us and helps us and guides us and rewards us. And he makes a significant commitment for all eternity. I will take care of you. It is an amazing reciprocal relationship based on the master's love for us and our love for him. But I ask you this morning, do you think of yourself as a Christian that way? Do you think of yourself as a bond slave? Oh, we love what the Lord's done for us. Oh, Lord, you've been so gracious and so good. And you blessed me and helped me and guided me and all those things. And Lord, keep it coming. Come on, keep it coming. But you, whoa, 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 whoa. Slave? Hmm, boy. A little strong. How about I just serve you some? No, I want you to be a bond slave. 
See, one of the greatest temptations of the American church is that we are seeking comfort instead of slavery. We're seeking comfort instead of slavery. I love, let me tell you, I love that the Lord has us mobile right now. Because it is keeping us dependent and it's keeping us humble. And you guys have been awesome about it. And that's important because the American church has become accustomed to being comfortable and to coming to a nice building and having everything in perfect order and not having anything demanded us and having our ego stroked as somebody talks about our needs and our desires and getting what we want from the Lord and making sure we're not confronted with anything that would make us feel uneasy so we can go home and feel good that we did the church thing. And I want to tell you this morning, that is not the actions of love. It is the actions of detached obligation. The greatest commandment of all, Jesus said, is to love the Lord your God with all that you have. And to be a bond slave, the only thing that will motivate us to be a voluntary, permanent slave is our love for Him. We must come back to our love for Him and remember the amazing provision that he has given to us. And it shows again, let's finish with this, in verse 31, when they pray and God responds. There is nothing like the power of a praying church, and it needs to increase in this body in 2012. I'm working on ideas right now to emphasize that and reshape our priorities. We had a wonderful prayer meeting Wednesday night, but very few of you were there. And I'm going to ask you, how are we going to be an unstoppable force for the kingdom of God if we can't once a month make time to pray together? There are so many opportunities, so many things God is calling us to in the next year of our existence. People to be discipled, people to be led to Christ. Who knows, maybe he'll lead us to a building. I don't know. Financial issues, ministry issues, care issues. There is all kinds of stuff that God has laying out and He wants to move in our midst, but He needs to see us collectively calling on Him. And there's nothing we can argue. Listen now, there's nothing we can argue in our theology. There's nothing we can look at in the Bible and say, well, God's not going to respond the way He does here if we pray because that's past. Prove that to me from Scripture. I'm not being mystical here. I'm being biblical. Prove to me that God won't answer this kind of way when we call on Him. Because I can't. When they asked Him for a unique confirmation of His power, look at verse 31. When they asked Him for a unique confirmation of His power, He responded in an unmistakable way. The room was literally shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Again, this is an ongoing action we need every day. And instead of speaking in different languages this time, because there's nobody around that needs to be convinced about the gospel, now they just speak the word of God with even greater zeal. Can you imagine what that sounded like? Everybody just started to declare the word of God. The room is shaking. 
And they're saying, oh, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord for what He's done, for His goodness and His kindness, His patience, His compassion. Everybody begins to speak the Word of God. We get to verse 32, and we don't have time to develop it, but let's just talk about it for a second. We see a repeat of Acts 2. They've got one heart, one mind. Nobody's needy. Everybody's giving. Listen, this is how the church once was. And this is not, oh, listen now, this is not, oh, it used to be like that. But Paul, get realistic. It's 2011. Church doesn't look like this anymore. Come on, you're living a pipe dream. Listen, for all the books and conferences and new trends and and church like you've never seen it before to the point now that that's passe, there's a reason why you've never seen it like that before. And all the clever ways that we've come up with to, to, that, that we're going to reach the culture this way and we've got to adapt and we've got to change and we've got to manipulate the Bible. We can't talk about Jesus this boldly. Let's, let's, we, we can't do it. Okay, tell me what's stronger than Acts 4.32. You can't improve on that. This was a church that loved God so fervently And they declared it to people. And when people were around it, they said, there is something about this place. These people have been with Jesus and they cannot stop talking about Jesus. And the gospel spreads and the opposition's coming. They're ready. Listen, it's only going to get rougher for the apostles. And it's only going to get rougher for us. How are we preparing? Are we spiritually resolved? How, how are we going to respond when the opposition strikes? We have the assurance of God's love and we have the reality of the changes taking place in our life and we're secure in His indwelling Holy Spirit in and through us. But knowing all that, listen now, I'm done. Are we bold And are we ready? When the test comes, will we be unstoppable, driven by our convictions? So we would say, we want the whole world to know that Jesus Christ is the Savior and that He redeems people from their sins and He heals lives and He secures forever. Let's bow our heads for a moment. I want to just talk to you for a second and know it's getting late but let me just do this maybe this morning you're struggling with timidity and fear maybe you hear in this word from the Lord that oh I'm still I still just I'm, I'm overwhelmed I'm distracted I can't get my mind off the things that are that are hindering me from being bold now. The opposition's causing me angst. I'm discouraged. It doesn't have to be that way. The Lord will remove that and He'll refocus our energy on the great calling that He has for us to go into the world and preach the gospel to declare the name of Jesus Christ, to speak with boldness and confidence in our faith, 
to tell people of the hope that is within us. Between you and the Lord right now, if you're struggling with that timidity and that fear and you're struggling because of the opposition, I want to encourage you and implore you, confess that to the Lord right now and ask Him to remove it. Just like He removed the lameness from that man's legs after 40 years, that He would remove whatever is holding you back, whatever is discouraging you in the midst of opposition, that He'd remove it from your life. So you can do the wonderful work of ministry that He has called you to and He has called this church to. I'm going to ask you to do something I, I almost never do and I'm the only one who's going to be looking. If, if you prayed that this morning, I want you to raise your hand because I want to be able to pray for you. Thank you. That's many of you. Lord, you know our hearts. You know what's in our minds. You know how the opposition is affecting every single one of us. We pray this morning for a great movement of your power in our lives as your children, as your bond slaves this morning, that you would remove the anxiety and the fear and the discouragement that comes from opposition and that you would refocus and prioritize our hearts so that we can serve you boldly. Lord, the enemy is going to come. He's working even now, whispering unholy things in our minds. That you're not victorious, that we're not strong enough, that it won't happen. But Lord, we ask you to defeat him again and again and again. We ask you to push him away from us. That we would stand strong for you. Lord, as a church, as we approach one year, you have mighty plans for us. Make us dependent, Lord. Ready, willing to serve, not distracted, not full of self. Not focused on anything, but standing and serving you. Lord, equip us right now, we ask. Stir our hearts. Fill us now to be the men and women of God that you need us to be. And Lord, may we find joy in being your bondservants, your slaves for the master who loves beyond all comprehension. Help us, Lord. Help these who have raised their hands and those who will be raising their hands tomorrow. Encourage us and strengthen us, we pray. And Lord, we will give you all the praise and all the glory and all the adoration because you deserve it. We love you and praise you. In Jesus' name.